Paul says, therefore, being justified by faith. He has unpacked in the first four chapters what many call the very heart of the gospel, the doctrine of justification. How that although man, being depraved and under the wrath of God and the revelation of it, in Romans 1.18, to the Gentiles who do not have the law, yet they have the revelation of God in creation and the revelation of God in their conscience. Romans 2.14 are under the wrath of God because they have not treasured and glorified the God of creation. And then the Jews, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, they have the written law of God and they boasted in it but yet they were inexcusable because they had committed the same sins with a religious veneer or religious facade. And so Paul proves that both are under sin, both Jew and Gentile, in Romans 3.10. And then he expresses the guilt of the condemnation and then leads us gently away from Sinai to the Lord Jesus Christ and the righteous revelation of God's wrath poured out in Jesus Christ. Where is boasting then? Is it excluded by the, by the law of the works? No, but by faith. All boasting is excluded and all boasting is given to God alone through Jesus Christ. And then in Romans 4, he answers the question of the Jew, what about Abraham? What about David? If it's justification by faith, what have they found? And then he goes on to show how Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. It was imputed to him. It was counted on his behalf through the same instrument, both Jew and Gentile. The uncircumcision, the circumcision, by and through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he concludes, therefore, on that great glorious doctrine of the gospel and what Jesus has done, we find four fruits of justification. If you prefer four benefits of justification, we'll begin to look at this morning. The first benefit that we have, all those that are in Christ, trusting in His righteousness alone, is we have peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word peace in the broader sense of the word means safety, security. It means good health. It means prosperity. It means welfare. It means good relationships. It's, it's a broad word. In the Old Testament, it's that shalom peace. That blessed state is yet to come where everything in the universe will be just exactly as it ought to be in righteousness. Because Christ, having made peace through the blood of His cross to reconcile the cosmos for which we are a part of. That, that is that coming state of peace where everything is peace and happiness and felicity. But here today, it is a peace that is that inward tranquility of soul that is resting in who God is and what God has done for us through our Lord Jesus Christ and it brings about a rest, a peace, or contentment of soul. To be content means you have enough. You have a sufficiency. It means completeness or soundness. 
Those are two more nuances of the Old Testament word peace, shalom. Completeness or soundness. When you're complete, when you're sound, when you're content, then you have all the necessary parts. All the appropriate parts for peace. What are the necessary parts for peace? Well, it's not plural, it's singular. It is God. We have peace with the only person that can bring this peace. The only way this peace can happen, we have peace with God. The necessary component of tranquility of soul and contentment of heart is God in Christ or through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ Himself will speak of His peace that He gives us. And it's a peace to be distinguished from the kind of peace that the world can give you. And the world can give it. And when the world gives it, it is a certain kind of rest and contentment. So Jesus says in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Because this peace is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So He says, Possess a pronoun, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth peace, give I unto you. So what is the distinction in the way Jesus gives peace? It's His peace. And it's not as the world gives peace, gives peace that Jesus gives. Well, think about the peace that's in the world. Think about the kind of peace that we enjoy and gives us a kind of rest, a kind of security, a kind of safety. But it's not the kind Jesus gives. I think, first of all, of good health insurance. Now, if you have pretty good health insurance, you've got some level of peace, and that's a good thing, that if you get sick, if you have to have surgery, it's covered. Now, that's something that gives you a little rest, a little contentment. You don't know if you're going to get sick, but if I do, and if I have to be in the hospital multiple days and rack up a big bill, well, my insurance covers that. The world gives you a little bit of peace or security. I think about the piece of home insurance for your house. If you were to come home one day from a trip and look across your lovely front yard and your house has been burned to the ground, that would be a very difficult thing to go through. All those trinkets, possessions that mean much to you are gone. But yet if you have home insurance, then what? There's a level of peace and security. It'll be difficult, but you get to rebuild and you get to replace, to some degree, what you lost. That is a kind of peace the world can give you. I think about security in our military or the police department. We can feel some level of security having a strong military and a good police department. That's a good thing. I want a good military. I'd like to have a good police department when something goes wrong or retirement. Retirement is a good thing. There'll be a day when you can't work. There'll be a day when you need income and you can't go out and earn it anymore. So it's a good thing to have a retirement if you can, but that kind of retirement will give you a level of security, a little bit of peace, and it'll bring you some level of rest. Jesus says, my peace is not like that at all. The kind of peace Jesus gives you is the kind of peace that stands when your health insurance won't cover it. When you didn't have enough coverage for the home and it won't rebuild it. When the police is defunded and they won't bow, uh, show up. And, and China's military is stronger than ours. 
It's when the gun you carry in your pocket won't fire. It's jammed. It's when the retirement is lost. Jesus says, my peace I give you is not like the world's peace. Because the world's peace is circumstantial. It's all based on events and happenings and things outside of yourself that are constantly in a state of flux. Yes, they can give you a measure of peace. And everything I listed, everything I said is not bad. It's something that gives us a level of peace. But Jesus says, I don't give that kind of peace. It's my peace. And the peace I give stands when all around your soul gives way. The righteousness, the justifying righteousness of God through faith gives us a peace that stands. And what is the peace of Jesus? We know from John 16.33 says, These words have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. Be of good comfort. Be of good cheer. Be of good courage. I have overcome the world. I have conquered the world. Now where is this peace to be found? Peace in me. Peace in God. Beloved, peace is not a circumstance. It's not an event. It is a person. And His name is God in Christ. And when we have this peace, it's the kind of peace that makes no sense. In fact, that's what Paul said in Philippians 4, 7 when he said, Be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious or worried for anything. But through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace that passes all understanding shall garrison, guard your mind, like a military, like a Roman cohort would guard a city in Christ Jesus. See? Does it make any sense to have peace when your house burned down and you can't rebuild it? That makes no sense at all. Does it make any sense to have no retirement? N nothing for the future? Not a good thing. Not something you should plan to happen. But if it were gone, is, is, it, is it not strange for a person to have peace in that? People look at you and say, I don't get it. This person is as restful and content as anybody I've ever seen, and they don't know what they're going to do tomorrow. That's because your peace is and can be in a person whose name is Christ, because being justified by faith means what? Peace with God. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice this peace is through Christ. It's through Him. This is the kind of peace that was announced at the birth of Jesus Christ, isn't it? When the angel spoke unto the shepherds abiding with their flock in the fields by night and said, Do not be afraid. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. And then after announcing that, the whole heavenly host appeared singing praise to God. And what did they say? Glory be God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward God. Men. It's the peace that only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the peace that happens through His blood. It's the peace of justification. In Romans 3, verse 23, we've all come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How can God freely justify you by His grace? You're a lawbreaker. That makes no sense. That's not even right. So Paul is going to give the next two verses in Romans 3 to explain that. God wants to explain it to us. 
whom God has put on display as a propitiation by faith in His blood. What does that mean? Through the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ, His blood, and absorbing the wrath of God, we receive that propitiation by faith in His cross. So God has set forth His Son to be a wrath-absorbing sacrifice received by faith to declare His righteousness in two ways. One, His righteousness for forbearing with sin in the Old Testament. Just overlooking it. He wants you to know this is a declaration of His righteousness. Abraham's cowardice, Noah's drunkenness, Moses' disobedience, Jacob's deception, Samson's lust, Eli's bad parenting, David's adultery and murder. God just winked at it. He is declaring through the crucifixion of Christ that the reason He did that is because it was paid for. He did not overlook it. It was bought and purchased in the cross. Second declaration. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness. There's a second declaration. That He might be just and the justifier of whoever believes in Jesus. In order that He might be just. How can God be just to freely justify you through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus? How can He just freely do that? He maintains His righteousness and His justice. Because when you believe, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you and your sins have become His. And so this peace that we enjoy, this peace that is not like the world gives, this inner rest in God alone is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. That's glorious because we're going to learn later there's tribulation in the world. And if you don't have this peace and tribulation, it'll rock, it'll shake you to the point where we lose this peace and it moves us away from the peace we have in God in search for a peace that cannot be found. So beloved, the first benefit, the first fruit is that we have peace through the Lord Jesus Christ, the kind that God gives in His Son, in a person, in Himself. Number two, we have access. Verse two, by whom also, this is in addition to number one, also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. Access. We have been given access because of the justifying righteousness of Jesus Christ received by faith. The word access means to be brought to something, to move in the direction of something, or to approach. Leon Morris speaks on this word access and says, The idea is that of an introduction to the presence chamber of a monarch. What is that? A presence chamber is a room reserved for a monarch or a very important person whereby they bring to that chamber a person for which they come into the presence of the monarch to experience friendship, fellowship with that monarch. So to have access 
to this grace. And what is this grace? The near demonstrative points back to the previous verse. This grace of justification, this grace of peace with God, we have access into this grace because the access is to God. We have been given access to God Himself. God has invited us into the presence chamber of the great monarch that He is so that we may have fellowship with God. This is the aim of justification. It's the aim of salvation, reconciliation, new birth, regeneration. It's the aim of everything in salvation is to be brought into the presence chamber of the God for which we have no right except that now we are right by a declaration of God who has declared us to be right through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.18, Jesus Christ gave Himself the just for the unjust. Why? That He might bring us to God. What was the aim of His death? Furthermore, are you fulfilling the purpose of why Jesus died for you? Are you having access to God? Are you moving? Are you approaching God? Are you working counter to the very purpose of your own redemption? We do sometimes, don't we? We lose sight of the reality of what God has done in the cross of Jesus Christ. What it means to be justified by faith. It means by faith, right? By whom also we have access by faith in this grace that invites us nigh. Hebrews 7.19 For the law made nothing perfect. Nothing was made perfect by the law. But the bringing in of a better hope did by which we draw nigh to God. What is the better hope? It's Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, the writer will say, having therefore boldness to enter in the holiest of holies. No Jew had that boldness. Nobody walked into that room. Just breaking the barrier of the veil, you would be dead. The only person, the high priest, went in once a year, not without blood. Now, beloved, you should have a deep confidence to walk right into the holiest of holies. Because that's what God is after. Having therefore boldness, confidence, freedom to enter into the holiest of holies. We've been, we've been given access to it. So the implication is that we're moving, that's what we're doing. By a new and living way which He has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say His flesh, To consecrate means to initiate, to to devote, or to dedicate. See, the Lord Jesus Christ initiated for you this access by His blood so that you would have confidence coming into the presence of God, into the, the presence chamber of the great monarch, freely, humbly, but freely into a chamber that no one was allowed access, but through the flesh of Christ, that is through His weakness and humiliation and His body, the veil which was as thick as a man's hand. Nobody could rip the veil with human hands. It was too thick. But it was ripped from the top to the bottom, signifying access to God God has been opened. We now, only by faith, not by works, we may confidently and humbly 
walk into the presence of God by faith into this grace. What is this grace? It's access to God. And having a high priest over the house of God, the writer will add, here's the implication, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Do you ever lack assurance before God? We all do at times, don't we? Did you know that's not from God? That's from us. God is going overboard in the Bible to let you know the way has been paid. The work has been done. The doors are no longer locked. They're not even hard to open. Just humble yourselves and trust Jesus and walk into His presence. That's what this holiday season is about. It's about Christ coming to give you access to God. Now here's part of the problem. Our doubts, our suspicions of God are often deep-seated within us, aren't they? Almost like a relationship you could be in. You ever wanted to be in a relationship where you really were fond of a person, a friendship or something more, and they wouldn't reciprocate the love? Or maybe in a marriage. There are couples in marriages today where one spouse or another loves deeply the other spouse, but they're not sure of the love being reciprocated. Maybe because of the actions of the spouse. They're just not sure. So what are the implications of that relationship? Well, that spouse is going to do what? Perform and work hard to get that love to be reciprocated. Maybe she's going to dress as nice as she can all the time. Maybe he's going to start pumping iron. Say, if I can just get looking a little better, trim off a few pounds around the waist, then she'll love me. I'll cook better. I'll clean house. I'll work harder. I'll try to get a promotion. Never really having the assurance that he or she loves me. That's not love. That's torment. And there are people that live in those relationships. But what about you? Do you have a view of the gospel that goes like this? God loves you because Jesus died for you? Did you, care, did you catch the false gospel in my words? It was one word. Because. That's a lie from the devil. God does not love you because Jesus died for you. You ever thought, I think Jesus loves me because He died for me. I'm just not sure about God's love. Jesus says some of the most comforting words in the upper room discourse. In John 16, about the 27th verse, when He says, In that day, you will ask the Father directly. I'm going to read it because it's so rich. Verse 26 of John 16. At that day you shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. Why not? Because the Father Himself loves you. In his, his love is independent of the Son's love. Now the Son loves you just the same because He's God. But the Father Himself loves you. He loves you. Or when we were without strength, verse 6. It's a verse I passed over when I read. 
For when we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, in Romans 5, 7. A righteous man here is just kind of an average Joe, good, upright kind of character guy. He just pays his taxes, doesn't harm anybody, does good. He's a right kind of guy. Scarcely would you find someone that would give their life to that person. Peradventure someone would even dare to die for a good man. And the good man distinguished from the righteous man is a man that's benevolent. Here's a man that's not just good in character. He helps people. I mean, more likely to find someone, but someone might even dare to die for a good man. Would you? Somebody you don't know. Well, he seems like a great guy. He's done a lot of good for our community. I think I'll go give my life in Paris for him. No, you wouldn't. In fact, to prove it, how many times when people are picketing courtrooms at the injustice of a man that was convicted and he was innocent and they're outraged but nobody's saying, let me die for him, let me die for him. Nobody says that. But God demonstrated His love for you. Commended. Displayed. Proved it. In that while you were yet an ungodly sinner, Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, gave His life for you. Do you doubt God's love? Yes, we do at times. It was love that sent Love sent my Savior to die in my stead. How should He love me so? Love sent Him. He's not trying to intercede for us before God. Will you love these people? No. God loved the world. He sent His Son. And so, beloved, the implication is stop trying to prove your worth to God. You don't have any. He's not looking for it. Stop trying to perform for God to get Him to love you. Stop trying to work for God. We've all been there, haven't we? Stop trying to pray more and to read more and to do more to get God to love you. He already loves you with an everlasting love. And that can't change. In fact, your standing before God cannot go up. It cannot be diminished because He has an everlasting love for you. It does not get stronger. It does not abate or decrease. It is forever a passionate, zealous, strong love for you. That's why grace is so amazing. Is it not? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So, beloved, the implication is now we we can have this rest. We have access. You don't earn it. It's by grace. It is by faith through grace that we have this standing, this access to God. And so that eliminates, it should eliminate the suspicion, the doubts, it should, have us, it should cause us to have a freedom, a confidence to come. And even when we sin, we come with confidence. Know what? He's going to forgive us. Not because our repentance is going to earn His love or even make Him love us. Because He already loves us in Christ. He's going to receive our repentance. He will not hold you at a distance. He will not Hold you back. See, this was the the first problem with the prodigal, wasn't it? See? 
Father, I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of your slaves and I'll live out in the quarters out on the backside of the property somewhere and I'll, I'll be good. What other way could God express His love for us through the prodigal son in saying, without words, that is not going to happen. He brings him into the presence chamber of his home. He puts a ring on his finger, a robe on his back, and everybody makes merry in the house because the place of a son is in the house, not with the servants. See, our suspicions, our doubts are often the cause of why we're not gaining ground over sin. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8 when he says, For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. Because as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now you expect Paul to get more detailed as to how to, how to fight the flesh. Well, he does. And this is what he says. For we have not been given the spirit of bondage again to fear, but the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. What are you saying, Paul? See, back to the slave. You have not been given a spirit of slavery where God hires you to work for Him and you've got to work and work and work to get accepted and to get the Father to love you. That is torment. When you start working for God, what happens in your fight against sin? You lose the battle. It's lost before you started. The Spirit is not leading you with the spirit of slavery where you live out on the backside of the desert, far from the home. He's leading you with the spirit of adoption whereby you come under the love of God, the peace of God, and you access God, which is the power of breaking canceled sin. It's the love of God. It's access with Him that gives us the power to fight the flesh. The Spirit has not given us this suspicion and doubt, although at times we certainly have it, don't we? So God is saying, I want my children to know you're, you're not a hired servant. You don't work for me. You don't work for me. I'm working for you. And I've done the work, so freely come in and experience the power of my peace and this access and my love. Or what? Where are we going? The love that is shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to you. What's that, what's that power? It's the power of sonship, not slaveship, not slavery. Sonship. For the Spirit Himself beareth witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Far be it from me to ever make one of God's true children to feel like they aren't. At times we feel like we aren't because the Spirit convicts us. But in that conviction, what do we do? We draw nigh to God. We draw near. Oh, beloved, the, the, the fruit of justification by faith is that you have access. And gloriously, the last thing on this point, your access is forever. It's permanent. How do I know that? Because of the perfect tense. Two words. Have First verb, have access, stand. Second verb, stand means continue, persist, persevere. 
The verb means it's already done. It's completed. You can't stop standing. You can't not continue. If you're a believer, if you've been justified by faith, you can't not be in a right relationship with God. You cannot be there. It cannot happen. It's permanent. And the ongoing result is the access. The access. See, that perfect tense. Completed action. But the ongoing fruit of justification is by faith we keep trusting. By faith He keeps us. By faith we keep having access. And by faith we continue because it's all of grace. It's this grace. If it's not this grace, right? If it is your performance, if it is your work, if it's your faith, Right? If it's your faith that you're looking to, if it's your faith itself that gives you access instead of the instrument, then what? Well, is your faith good enough to keep permanent access? Oh, I don't think so. Just last week, you and I proved that. Is your performance good enough to maintain permanent access? I don't think so. Rest in the justifying righteousness of Jesus Christ, your right standing stands forever. Amen. Forever. That's good news in a holiday or any season, isn't it? Number three. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Rejoice. The benefit of being justified by faith is we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now this hope here is a certain hope. There's a secular kind of hope and there's a certain hope. A secular hope is a confident expectation that's based on a possibility. The word possibility makes it secular, right? You hope mom and dad get it right. If you, if you, if you do presents on Christmas, you, you tell them. You tell people, I, this is it, this is what I want. What happens? You hope they get it right. And how many times? Dad, we just blow it, especially with our wives. I mean, I showed you the picture. I cut it out of the Mac. I sent you the email. And you still couldn't get it right. See? Secular hope is a confident expectation only in a possibility. But biblical hope is a confident expectation in a rock-solid certainty. That's what makes it biblical hope. Just think about how many packages are being delivered as I speak. Designed, designed, designed to bring about the fulfillment of someone's dreams and expectations. Right? Hope is when you have a dream. And I'm not condemning dreams, right? We, we dream for things. We, we want things to happen. We don't want things to happen. But there's a test later that tells us whether those dreams are in the right place that they should be. So you've got this dream. You've got this longing. You've got this desire. And then you've placed that dream in the hands of some object. This time of year, it's... Parents, friends, people, you, you, this is what I'd like to have. 
And then you expect the delivery man with all those packages delivering on your front doorstep. Just one of them, per chance, is going to deliver on my dreams. And when that delivery happens, your expectation in the dream is what? Fulfillment, fulfillment, joy, happiness. Choose your word. Now, if that could happen, we would not have to do this all over again next year. I think I've been through 59 of these things, and I'm still looking for the dream to come true. If, if that's where it lies, right? It, it can't happen. It won't happen. It'll never happen. But being justified by faith, it will happen. It is certain to happen. Because we have hope in what? The glory of God. That's where biblical hope is going towards the glory of God. Now let's think about what is certain to happen. The word ex rejoice here is a different word for joy. It means to exalt. Exalt. Uh, it has all the trappings of joy. There's jubilation. There's elation. But exaltation carries the thought of victory in a, in a contest or a, or a battle. So, you've seen this kind of exultation with the boys in the locker room after a football game. And they won. They were triumphant. They were elated. They were jubilant. Jumping up and down, champagne bottles pouring over the head, or maybe the 10-gallon the Gatorade dump on the coach's head. What, what's going on there? We won. We won. That's the word here. It's a kind of exultation in victory. In victory. Now, the jubilation still has another component to it because they haven't gotten on the, the platform where the trophies received and strangely and oddly everybody starts kissing this metal piece of gold or whatever it's made of. Why are they doing that? They're expressing their enjoyment of the jubilation that's already been accomplished. Beloved, your victory, your triumph is over. Wow. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Yes. Speak comfortably unto Jerusalem, for her warfare is over. Amen. It's accomplished. We are in the gospel age of triumphant elation that's within our souls. It's the same place this peace is. It's a rest, it's a joy in the soul, and it's over hoping in the glory of God. Now, the football players or whatever kind of game that are having this jumping up and down the locker room or, or on the field, they go up on the platform and they receive the trophy. What's going to happen for you in the hope of the glory of God is not receiving a trophy, but you are going to be presented to God. You are, in a sense, His trophy. What does the Bible say will be the upshot of that experience? As for me, I shall behold His face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I wake in His likeness. David says, when I come into the fulfillment of the hope I have now in seeing the glory of God, I'll be satisfied forever. Ever. Psalm 1611. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In Thy presence is fullness of joy. At Thy right hand are joys forever and pleasures forever. See, all that you dream about, all those packages, all those deliveries, have this one common denominator to it. The fulfillment is the fulfillment of jubilation, triumph, 
Elation, joy, and pleasure. That's what you're after with the package. It's coming. It's certain. In fact, Paul says, you won't be disappointed. It's been purchased. It can't not happen. There's nothing that can stop it. This train is moving to that destination. And it's by faith in Jesus Christ. Jude says, now to him that is able to keep you from falling, because he will keep you from falling totally and finally. Why is he going to keep you from falling? To present you faultless before the presence of his glory. You're on the stage now and you're being presented to God with exceeding joy. That is what the hope of glory is moving toward. That's what we have a foretaste, a sampling of now, of that triumphant jubilation that we experience in worship and with God. It's a sampling of what's coming. It's only a sampling. Just like the locker room jumping up and down is only a sampling of holding the trophy. You're going to be presented divinely to God. Clothe in righteousness, and there you will experience all that the Bible says you're going to experience. This is not a possibility. This is not a hope so. This is a rock-solid certainty for all those that are justified by faith. By faith, not by works, not by performance, not by your prayers, not by your good works. That's the outflow of being justified. The same faith by which we receive Christ's righteousness is the same faith whereby we are now being sanctified or being made like Christ, hoping for the glory of God to come because hope is sustaining us in those challenges of life. This is what the coming of Christ is about. This is the hope He came to bring. This is why he first laid himself in a way by his own choice in that manger. This is why he grew and learned the law of God. This is why he became a human being forever. He took upon himself something he had never been. He took upon the humiliation of being a creature for you. And he's a creature forever. So you would know deeply. That you belong to Him and one day you, you can put all your hope in Christ. You ever hold back on your hope? That kind of dreaming we do on earth? Say, my, my parents said they're going to deliver this year, but I'm kind of, you know, just kind of not getting too excited yet. Uh, I'm one of those parents who try to help my kids that way all the time. I, it's, it's a problem. I shouldn't do it. Now, don't get your hopes up, you know. <laughs> That's a bit expensive, or we may not be able to do that, so we're, we're, we're going to plan to, but don't get your hopes up. You know, I'm always giving the caveat. Beloved, get your hopes up. You cannot get them too high. They will never be. God's not going to say, now, children, now, calm down. You're, you're hoping a little too much in me. You, you can't hope enough. The more you hope, the more you have a confident expectation that God alone is going to deliver on your dreams of fulfillment and happiness, just that much more you're being used in the kingdom and the fruit is flowing out of that hope and you are experiencing the kind of joy or exaltation that it's an inward joy that can happen even when.
point number four. We'll have to save for another time. And not only so. Now, why do you think Paul introduced it with that? Not only so. He's about to throw in a a surprise bend in the road. Not only so. Not only do we have peace with God. Not only do we have access by faith into this grace with God in His presence. Not only do we rejoice in the hope of uh, the glory of God. We glory, same Greek word, exalt. We rejoice in tribulation also. That one I'm a bit suspect. Are you? I, I was feeling real good about the first three. Until number four. Now, Paul wants us to understand the how and the why and the experience of what tribulation is all about. So he says this, We glory in tribulation also knowing, we have to know something going into the tribulation, knowing that tribulation is bringing about patience, worketh, knowing that patience implied is bringing about experience, And we know that experience is bringing about, implied, worketh, hope. And hope will not make you ashamed, confounded, or disappointed, like the packages that are going to disappoint you real soon. They will not disappoint you because this hope is in God. And because the love of God is shed abroad, it's poured out in your hearts By the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Strangely, the word shed abroad is again the perfect tense, which means it's already happened to you. And it'll never be repeated. But there'll be fruit that's ongoing because of this one-time deposit in your soul of the fullness of the love of God that cannot be packed anymore in your soul because the Holy Spirit, the agent of love, is there. What is the fruit? And how does tribulation actually work this out? And we'll have to look at that at another time, maybe soon, as we consider the the four fruits of justification. Now, before any of these fruits can ever be true for you or for me, it requires faith and repentance. Why, why do you mess it up with repentance? We just need to believe. You can't believe without repentance. What are you believing? You believe you're a pretty good old guy and Jesus is going to save you because you do good? No. You're believing you are a sinner in need of a Savior and you're burdened with the weight of sin. You know yourself to be a sinner. Which means then you turn toward, by faith, the only one that can save you. The only person. You can't save yourself. Your works can't save you. Your mother can't save you. Your daddy can't save you. Nobody. I can't save you. I can't save myself. But He can. And He will. And He'll give you access. But He'll never give it to you apart from faith. He will give no one access forever that tries to come to Him with works of righteousness. In fact, he'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Yeah. What's their work of iniquity? It was apart from faith, they're trying to work their way into heaven. Depart from me, I never knew you. Mm-hmm. But by faith, you can have access and come freely today. Because every day is the day of salvation. Amen. Won't you come 
and drink of the waters of life freely. Let's pray. Father, you're a great God. We don't deserve any of the benefits of justification. We don't even deserve to be justified. We've, we know it. We've proven it. But we thank you, Lord, that the only kind of people you justify, according to your word through Paul in Romans 4, are the ungodly people. We all qualify. You justify sinners. You justify when no one else, nothing else can justify. And you do it in a way that exalts your your glory and your righteousness. And you declare that in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That your wrath has been absorbed. Lawbreakers have been punished. But gloriously, we've been punished in Jesus Christ because He took our punishment. The chastisement of His peace was upon us. He was punished that we might have peace. He is the Son that's been given, and the government is upon His shoulders. His glorious name for us, Lord, the name you give Him, wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. It will expand and expand forever and ever and ever under the dominion and rule of His messianic kingdom. And even in eternity, our peace will be ever expanding, never ceasing, never abating, always advancing. What a glorious thought and reality that we can't even comprehend. Lord, bless us to know more of this peace, to have greater access that you've given, and to rejoice in hope and understand more about what tribulation is designed to do as a benefit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make this so in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.